from the entertainment capital of the world. I'm Christopher Calloway, and this is Creator Talks, the show where I interview writers and artists working in comic books and in other mediums. Today, my guest is Jeff Parker. Who is Jeff Parker? Well, Jeff has worked on such books as, for Marvel, Agents of Atlas, of course, for DC, Batman 66. Most recently, he wrapped up a run on James Bond Origin, being published through Dynamite Entertainment. And he is also now working on Warlord of Mars Attacks, also being published through Dynamite Entertainment. Jeff and I talk about all three of those. First, James Bond. Second, The Warlord of Mars Attacks. And third, Batman 66. And of course, I have fun with Jeff kicking back with the creator and asking him all my fun questions, including how he worked a little bit of Vegas into one of his comics because he's familiar with the area. He's been here. So we talk about Vegas and surrounding areas during our conversation. And I also talked to Jeff about how he got interested in comics when he first encountered comics. That is a great story in and of itself. We also talk about some other work that he's done on Popeye. And what is the one character that he hasn't had a chance to work on yet that he would love to that the great Joe Kubert used to work on? I hope you're listening, Dynamite. This might be a good opportunity. Just saying. There was so much I wanted to cover with Jeff. I couldn't get to everything, so I'm sure he'll be back on the show someday in the future to talk about projects that he has in the works that he could not speak about at the time of our conversation. Hopefully something will be announced soon, but you can draw some conclusions from what you hear during our conversation. So let's get started. Please give a hearty welcome to my guest on this week's show, one of the greatest writers in comic books, Jeff Parker, here now on Creator Talks. Jeff, welcome to Creator Talks. Hey, thanks for having me on, Chris. You grew up in the South, I understand. Uh, my dad grew up in North Carolina, and then he moved to Delaware. You grew up in North Carolina. I'm from Burlington, which was always the place everybody's socks and pantyhose came from. And then it became the outlet capital of the South. When I was around 10 or so, like every place started opening an outlet. Everyone who was driving from New York down to Florida for vacation would come through and shop, you know, because it was dirt cheap compared to every other state uh, along the highway. And that was our big claim to fame. Well, I went to school in East Carolina and I lived down in Chapel Hill, which was pretty close to there until I left and just moved out west forever. So what was it like growing up down south? Well, you know, cars weren't invented yet. So that was, that was uh, <laughs> one, you had to be good at horses and <laughs> steam powered machines and dirigibles. You know, I was a kid in the 70s, going into the 80s, slightly ahead of the Stranger Things kids. Well, I know, actually, I would be right on the Steve Harrington track. Like, I would have been the same high school year as him and everything. And my dad owned a grocery store. In there, he had a spinner rack with comic books on it. So that was my whole introduction to comics. They were just always around. And I could usually grab as many as I wanted, but I had to put them back because he needed to sell them. So I didn't have a massive collection like you would have assumed I had. Only when I got sick, they would just bring me a lot of comics and those I would keep. rest of the time, I had to read them gently and put them back on the rack. When you saw the spinner rack, what did you like to pick up off of it? I'm sure you could read anything, but was there anything that you always went back for? You couldn't wait until it came in. No, I, I read absolutely every comic. It was weird. It's like I remember Tom Spurgeon referred to it when we did a talk one time as an ecumenical way of looking at comics. And, and it was like to me, it was like one minute I'd be reading like Casper and Hot Stuff, Harvey comics. 
And then I'd be reading a Batman story. And then sometimes I'd go over uh, the magazine rack would have the Warren comics like Vampirella, which I remember I was kind of worried, like I wasn't sure I was supposed to be reading it. It looked kind of naughty. No one ever stopped me. So I would just go ahead and read them and take them home and everything. I just thought they were great. And, and those would have the new spirit stories when Eisner started doing them again. Literally everything was good. Like the first thing I think I read was Dennis the Menace. I was really big into the Fawcett comic books. That's when I was learning to read. You could see from my old books where I'm writing on the side and I'm trying to figure out what the words mean and stuff like that. And comics are perfect for that because there's lots of context clues in the pictures to let you get an idea of what they're saying. Yeah, this is kind of a nature versus nurture question. Do you think the exposure to all those comics make you a better writer today? Because you saw such a variety and you can do so many different kinds of stories. Or was that just the kind of person you were? Well, that is a good question. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know that reading them made me a better writer. I know it made me feel very native to the form because I would draw, you know, I, like the first work I ever got in comics was artist. It was years before anyone actually trust me to write anything. But, you know, I felt very solid on how comic books worked. It wasn't like something I had to really sit down and, you know, break apart like parsing a sentence. You know, you just like, oh, no, you set it up and blah, blah, blah. You go through it. And then later I started deconstructing things to figure out how really good cartoonists did what they did, like Toth or whoever. Well, speaking of comics, you just yeah. recently wrapped up, or it did recently wrap up, James Bond Origin, the 12-issue Maxi series. I don't know if everybody realizes that, that that was the end of the series. And I binged and read a whole bunch of them recently. And I'm wondering, do you know of anybody else who has tried to do a James Bond origin story that goes back to his days, his early days when he entered the Navy and was in training for the special services? No. And, and that's why the Fleming people were interested in Dynamite, who you know is, has the license right now for comics, to do such a book. Nick and Joe at Dynamite may have brought me up. I know Nate Cosby was the one who first brought it up to me about doing such a thing. And I immediately was like, oh, that's going to be a lot of research because <laughs> it's, you know, it's essentially writing a World War II comic is what it is. I was a huge Bond fan from childhood. My parents were always big in the Bond movies. Like I, I saw them actually kind of in order because there was a drive-in theater called the 70 Twin in our area. They would show the Bond movies in the summer. So I remember my dad and mom took me uh, to see Dr. No. If it was the 60s, it was the very end of it. It was probably the early 70s. They probably assumed I would just sleep in the back. No, I, I was captivated by it. You know, I was watching the whole thing. To my mind, it was probably a very different story. I thought it was all about the robot monster that was attacking the beach. James Bond's super friend, Quarrel, who can be stabbed in the face with a glass bottle. You know, that's, <laughs> who knows what I thought the plot was? But I, I had a pretty good grasp, again, like with comics, about James Bond early on. And then later on, you know, I read some of the Fleming novels. And that was the thing they wanted to do, because in the later Fleming novels, specifically, uh, You Only Live Twice, I, I think Fleming himself realizes, oh, they're going to do this someday. I better set some groundwork. And he starts mentioning Bond's early days, how he went to Fett's college and dropped out and joined the war. And I mean, he kind of gives you mileposts to go by, like these things happened. So the Fleming people gave me that as a, as a sheet, you know, just showing like, OK, here's all the landmarks that he referred to in the books that we have to stick by. 
And then I started brainstorming and would talk with Nate. And, you know, we came up with ways that this could all make sense. And Mike Lake of the Fleming Estate uh, made a good suggestion about using Clydebank Blitz in uh, Scotland as a kind of inciting point for James since he was supposed to be Scottish. And he's only Scottish because Sean Connery was Scottish, you know. And That's right. I don't think Fleming originally thought about whether he was or not. I think he just kind of went more that way because Connery became the face of him to the whole world. We kind of built off of that stuff and strangely plausible. I mean, it's, you know, trying to adhere to historical details. Recently, I've said this before, I watched on Netflix, there's a show called Churchill Secret Agents. If you watch it, it's really close to a lot of the stuff we do. It's him talking about the special operations executive. And they do it as a, uh, a reality show. So they have people in period clothes and everything trying out for the program. And it, it's not like our crappy reality shows where people are always screwing each other over and stuff like that. You know, it's just people trying their best to play by the rules and do it to be a spy in 1940. When I saw that, I was like, wow, where was this when I was planning the book? This was very helpful. <laughs> but that's the way that always happens. You always get all the stuff you need like months or a year later from whenever you uh, start researching things. Oh, but you could appreciate it more then, couldn't you? <laughs> yeah, I was like, hey, I got pretty close. I was pretty excited. I was like, all right. So I was looking everywhere in library books and looking online at everything and you know, then trying to filter out what's a reliable source. The temptation whenever you're you know, just Wikipedia cramming for a subject that you're going to work on is as soon as you see something interesting, you want to jump all over it. But then you have to like, wait, is somebody just being speculative here? Or is this really what happened? But we're keeping pretty close to history. We occasionally have real historic events. The only thing I don't do, I don't do the James Bond thing of having gadgets that don't exist yet. I felt like at this point, there's enough stuff people don't know that you can present things. It's like reverse science fiction. You can present stuff that was actually there that people didn't know about, and it has the same effect. It's like really cool when you find out about it. You're like, no, they really did this. You don't see it in all these movies all the time. You could still do another 30 years of movies on World War II. It hasn't been mined at all. Yeah, it's really interesting that you adhere to historical facts as much as possible, because I really appreciated that part about it. I really enjoyed that. And it felt like a slightly different story to me in that way. I mean, it wasn't what I expected. And setting it in his Navy years was very interesting. And it's fascinating that there's not that much, like you said, back history in the books. What I remember reading more about in the books is what he had for breakfast in tremendous detail. How to play Baccarat in tremendous detail, but not so much about his past. It was whatever Fleming was into at the time. How does he keep having uh, adventures in Jamaica? It's not like Jamaica is the hot spot of the world where everything's going down, you know. It's just Fleming lived there. You know it when you're reading those breakfast descriptions, that's just what Fleming eats. It's funny. That, and, of course, you know, I'm trying to stay away from the, like, uh, and here's where he first discovered his love of vodka martinis. I might succumb and eventually do it, but I'm trying to not do it right away or not do the whole, here's how Bond first used a Beretta or anything like that, and here's where he first starts saying his name. Because that kind of thing will get hokey really fast. And I feel like the key to the book is in showing his character as he's young. Like You have to then say, what do you do when you strip Bond away from all this catchphrases and, and gadgets and everything? What have you got left? To me, then it gets interesting. At first, I thought I was worried about the same thing. I was thinking, oh, wait, doing something this early in his life, we can't have all that stuff. It's like, how will they even know it's him? And then I realized, well, that's not important at all. What's important is always focusing on 
how resourceful James is and mainly just persistent. He just literally never gives up. Uh, he gets beat a lot, but he just eventually outlasts everyone. And to me, that was what makes him a fun character. So we do a lot of that. Yeah, I mean, you, you probably noticed throughout the year, you, you see a lot of things where Bond does not succeed. But then you think about it and you think, well, you lived through a year of World War II. That right there is all the success you need. Yeah, you see how he kind of thinks his way through things. And like you said, it's not fan service. It's not, oh, here's this moment and here's that moment and here's the origin of this. It's not that at all, which is, I think is why I enjoyed it so much. It was much more about his character, his persistence, his ingenuity. And like you said, he's a survivor. Doesn't always win. And if I recall from reading the novels, he didn't always win. He got beat up pretty bad a lot. In fact, like a recurring thing in the books is he seems to have a high tolerance for pain. Mm hmm. Yeah, they always lean in on that. We do that some too, though I don't want particularly want to torture him throughout the story. But a lot of what I see of it is he's in the ultimate proving ground to learn how to be this world-beating secret agent one day. So he's just generally running around with his eyes open and learning as much as he can. You know, he's taking everything in. And we try to have him later suddenly come back and know how to do something he didn't do before or be a little better at negotiating or spotting a trick or something like that you know you get to see him learn on the job and you'll see more where he has other more seasoned agents he's going to pay attention to if the series somehow goes on which i didn't confirm right there but that's a possibility it's a possibility okay all right i certainly hope so because that was one of my questions like i hope this goes on because there's like you said there's plenty more there to mine about his world war ii days you know, this would make a great prose novel. You know, you could use illustrations by Bob Q or Abraham Estoff for like chapter openings. And you could really dig in even deeper if you wanted to, if you felt like doing that and if the call was there. What do you think about that? It would definitely work. Bond works in prose first and foremost anyway. An illustrated one would be kind of nice. And it'd be cool to work with those guys because they just do just spectacular stuff. Bob Quinn, he modeled young James on the way Fleming described him in the novels. At one part, he actually just refers to Hoagie Carmichael. And, and when you go look at a picture of him and you see this kind of gaunt, angular, long face, you go, oh, OK, that's what he's talking about. That's the way Bob drew him. <laughs> and then Ibrahim picked up the ball with it. And Ibrahim, like he was originally supposed to come in working on it with me. And then he won them over so fast, they gave him his own standalone issue, and he should do more of those where he writes and draws himself. And Bob also is a very good writer, too. It's, it's annoying because uh, they can all do my job if they want to. <laughs> do you think that you would ever do one of the adaptations of one of Fleming's novels? You know, in other words, they, they put out Casino Royale, and I believe Live and Let Die might be up next. Do you think you might ever do one of those in that series that Dynamite's doing now, the big you know, hardbacks? Wow. You know, I hadn't given it any thought, actually, because I've just been so absorbed in the task at hand. But it'd be really tempting. I loved all that stuff. The movie Live and Let Die was really burned into my head as a kid. And there's some things, you know, you probably wouldn't put in there now. <laughs> there's there's all kinds of problematic stuff in Bond when you look around. I oh, mean, sure. It's, it's, <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah, the challenge of it would be pretty fun. One of my favorite movies of Bond is From Russia With Love. I love Robert Shaw in there as Red Grant. 
who's just seems like is at least as tough as Bond and a pretty scary guy to go up against, Captain Quint. That fight on the train is still, to me, one of the most realistic movie fights in movie history. Before we leave Bond, I would assume, based on what you've told me so far, that Sean Connery is probably your favorite Bond? You would think that, and I really like him a lot. And, and I love Daniel Craig. I think he really gets it. And he's a real physical presence. And Ibrahim would back me up if he were here, too. I really like Timothy Dalton. I felt like the movies around him weren't that great because at that point, they just didn't have the support. The production values are super low. Uh, they were in a transition period and everything. But he himself was terrific as Bond. He's handsome, but yet he seems dangerous. They seem to go from tough, threatening Bond all the way to silly effete bond with, you know, your Roger Moores and your Pierce Brosnan's, you know, sort of thing. And I felt like Timothy Dalton really had a good balance. A lot of people, like my dad, always liked George Lazenby. I thought he was okay. I don't know. He just probably, for me, he had the same uphill battle anybody directly following Connery was going to have. Maybe they'd always need a transition bond before they go into one who does a lot of movies. There was so much buzz about Pierce Bronson being considered for the part and he couldn't take it because of Remington Steele. And there was just so much appetite for it. But now what I hear, like what you said, I hear more people saying that Timothy Dalton really stands out now. It's kind of a, uh, what do you call it? unjustly maligned or not even maligned, but just kind of overlooked because mm-hmm. of the presence of the other actors over the years. That's interesting. Well, like that first movie was okay, Living Daylights. The second one is just that story. It's, you know, it's just rough and you feel bad. It's like Dalton is a great actor. He deserves a better story around him and, and really good directing. If you had had Timothy Dalton, then the production values and directing that came right after it with Brosnan, man, it would have just really been something. Well, from James Bond... Now we're moving all the way over to Warlord of Mars Attacks. And I didn't think it could be done, but you did it. You brought together Burroughs' John Carter and Mars Attacks. How did you do that? How did this all come about? Well, I was brainstorming with Nate. You know, Dynamite's been having a lot of success with the mashups of properties. He sent me the PDF because I hadn't seen the book yet of Kyle Starks and Chris Schweitzer doing, you know, the Mars Attacks stuff. And I like those guys anyway. They're terrific. And I was like, oh, yeah, I forgot how fun this was. I like the card set, but it's a card set. Had a uh, Wally Wood art, Norm Saunders. You know, it's cool, pulpy, uh, little green men sort of thing. And then I was thinking like, yeah, but how do you get those together and have it make any sense? A lot of times I've ended up on property, like on jobs just because of this where someone brought it up. And I was like, no, it doesn't make any sense. I wouldn't do it. But if I were going to do it, <laughs> and then I start brainstorming, like, here's how the story could work. And then at that point, you realize, well, now I've figured it out. I might as well just write the book. Well, I spent that time <laughs> in my mind uh, making this whole thing work. And then I, I just thought, you know, it would be it would be a nice little balance to the Bond stuff to do something that's a lot lighter. But it has serious moments. But also, you know, there's a lot of humor in it. Even when something's funny, I don't make it. The same thing with Batman 66 when I did that. I I don't want to make it so the story doesn't matter. I can't I can't stand stuff like that. To me, like the story still has to work. If you just read the plot as a story like those Batman 66 has had to work as a Batman story, first and foremost. And then you bring in the tone and everything that makes it what it is and the campy aesthetic and all that sort of thing. But you don't start with like, what's a funny story? I never do that. I don't know. Maybe that's a mistake, but I I just don't do it. That's why it works. (laughs) Yeah. And then how do you make it funny? It's not goofy. It's funny. 
but it's not goofy. And in things like this, I think not necessarily what's funny, but what's just cool? What would it be really cool to see in this kind of scenario? And, you know, and I went back and I watched the John Carter movie Disney mm-hmm. did, which mm-hmm. I thought was great, but they kind of foolishly didn't say anything like of Mars or Barsoom or anything. Yeah, in it. yeah. Bad marketing. Yeah, it's terrible. It, they were going by some superstition thing like, oh, the word Mars in a movie does bad. Uh, yeah, until it doesn't. That movie, The Martian, did great. It has nothing to do with it. It's just those weren't good movies. All they had to do is Disney. All they had to do was call it Princess of Mars and wham, it would have been through the roof. I really enjoyed that. I like Tyler Kitsch. I can never Kitsch or whatever his name is. Kitsch doesn't sound right because it sounds like you're talking about you know Mars yeah. Attacks. You're talking about like the Tim Burton movie. Yeah, I went back and watched that, and I was like, oh, yeah, this was really fun. This was a good movie. And uh, and even though I can't use things directly from there, that uses enough of the novel stuff. I did kind of focus on it a little. Yeah, I liked it, too. The only other thing it needed was a little more red on the planet. It's like too much like an earth and desert. It has to be red. You're right. Kind of kept coming out kind of orangish brown. Like, just make it red. Just straight up red. Now, who was your model for John Carter? Who are you thinking of? Your version, your interpretation. All I wrote when I was uh, writing with Dean Hotz, when I was writing to Dean uh, about it was, I really thought he needed a mustache. But it might look kind of funny because he never has a mustache in any other version you ever see. But I was thinking, period-wise, he should. But I said, can we at least just have some great big sideburns? Yeah. <laughs> uh, kind of get that 1860s sort of vibe going. And man, Dean put him right on there. It looks so cool. And it, it makes him stick out, you it know. It's like, and then he looks cool when he's wearing the earth clothes. You know, he's, he's wearing Ramon's earth clothes for a little bit of issue two. Because, of course, he was laying there naked in a cave. And then you have to get around the whole thing of like the books never explain exactly what's going on with him teleporting. And the movie kind of addressed the whole idea like he's making a copy of himself. And I went with, uh, no, he's sending himself, but it is like reconstituting his body because how else is he going to jump around on Mars and do all this stuff and like Superman, you know, and then when we finally get to that, Dean just goes off. It's so good. He's a killer artist. He is. I had him on the show and I've met him in person. Really nice guy. I love his stuff. I was so excited to see he was on the book with you. Oh, yeah. I want to work with him on something easier after this. He's had so much to draw. I mean, he's had to draw billions of Martians, cities. As you'll see in, in the book, it gets a little more pared down towards the end. We don't show all this calamity going on on Earth later in the story. I felt bad, but it's kind of not Mars Attacks unless you have that. Like, I often advise people, like, try not to wear the artist out. You know, they've got a big job. Consider a big fog rolling in in Act 3 or something that, you know, just gives them a bit of a break. Don't suddenly start writing more characters into the story. I used to draw comics. It's a lot of work. It's You're always averaging like 100 drawings an issue. When you get towards the end of an art, you're beat. It's a lot of focus that you have to keep up and a lot of long hours. Dean probably appreciates that. You can appreciate that because you know what you're putting him through when you do it. You're like, here, I'm sorry. <laughs> but the sad thing is I didn't not put him through it. I, st- I still did. <laughs> He did anyway. I just feel bad about it. That's the only uh, thing that's different. Uh, but again, I do want to make it up to him and one day have just like, let's just do one guy swimming around in the ocean. How about that? And nothing else. Could you do a Tarzan. Oh, yeah. That's really, at this point, the only thing that I grew up loving that I haven't done is Tarzan. Uh, I've gotten to work on most every other property or character I really like. Like I even got to write the other day, Steve Lieber and I did 
uh, a Popeye strip for the anniversary that's going on all year. And they're having all these guest artists do Popeye strips. Steve emailed me and said, hey, they want me to do one. And he knew I would want to write it right away because I'm just a huge Popeye freak. I should have said that earlier on when I was going on about Dennis the Menace. Popeye was my actual first big cartoon craze because there were cartoons on all the time. And he beat people up. He's just a complex character. And then it wasn't until years later that I got to read the original E.C. Seagar stuff. It's still some of the best comics ever made. It's hilarious. Wimpy is one of the greatest comics characters ever created because he's just ruthless in the fact that he'll sell Popeye out. Yet Popeye still treats him like his best friend. That is weird, yeah. (laughs) And there's a lot of stuff like that. Popeye never holds it against him. There's just so many funny things. If you ever get that Fantagraphics collection, it's really worth it. It's so good to read. It's like, wait, how did I get on Popeye? Like, oh, yeah, as a kid, I loved Joe Kubert adaptations of Tarzan that he did for DC Comics. I thought they were just the best. They were excellent. Um, I have one of those giant size editions of it, which is it's fun yeah. to read it in the big giant edition. And uh, John Buscema also did Tarzan for Marvel. I enjoyed that series too. Unfortunately, I cut up my DC Giants because they would always have a diorama in the back. So you cut that up and it'd be like all of the great apes doing the dum-dum or something and Tarzan in the front. So you'd make the diorama. And so mine were always cut up in the back and all these things. I got the use out of my comics. They don't do anything like that now, do they? No. Chris Ware, with his Acme Novelty Library, you could tell he expected everybody to make them, where he would make like little, here, make this theater and blah, blah, blah. Probably people did it, but then copied on cardstock so they didn't have to screw up their comic book. I did stupid stuff, too. Like I cut out the Marvel value stamps. I did the same thing, and I was like, where am I supposed to take these Marvel value stamps? (laughs) I eventually found one of the books, one of the stamp books, and I forget you traded in for something, but the books I cut up, uh, it would make you sick. I mean, it makes me sick to know what I cut up. It was like, why did I ever do that? These things would be worth so much more right now. <laughs> I destroyed them. They're all from the era of the books are worth money now. Oh, yeah. If I could just touch upon Batman 66, because I'm sure people are saying, Chris, ask about that. And you had a long run on that. And I love that series. And also the team up with Man From U.N.C.L.E. Do you think there'll ever come a time when you'll go back to it again and revisit it? They're not doing it as much now. I think the Allred Boys are doing Batman meets the Legion. Yeah, I don't know how much more. They're probably still going to always do some of it because... It took forever for them to finally be able to use. It's like, why would DC have a hard time doing Batman? But that specific version of Batman was tied up forever with the rights split up amongst different studios. It took a long, a lot of manipulating and buy and spending money and getting people to sign off to get it back to where Warner could finally do. Well, you know, the thing they really wanted to do was the DVD sets, the Blu-ray set, but also like, you know, they wanted to be able to do comics. And I wasn't sure exactly how apparently us doing the comics also helped the process. And probably some of that was simply they were sending around like, look, Julie Newmar's in this comic. She signed off on it. Come on, uh, Yvonne Craig, something like that. You couldn't use all the likenesses, though. Some people did not sign off or they or the estate wouldn't sign off. Or there was no estate to approach. Like uh, the main ones of that were Commissioner Gordon and uh, O'Hara and Alfred. That's why uh, those three characters are always kind of looking different, depending on how somebody wanted to draw them. You know, we kind of did a compromise of Gordon between the comics and the show. O'Hara's all over the place. He's always different. And 
Alfred's generally kind of close to the TV version, but not quite. And I remember one came through, like I was working with Colleen Coover on a Batgirl Catwoman story. Yvonne Craig hadn't given her likeness rights. And I think they were trying to show her like, oh, no, you need to do this because you will make money on these toys we want to sell. You know, they were going to do these full figure things and all that. And her likeness right, she signed and it came through like, right as Colleen had finished drawing the story. And Colleen went back. She never does this, but she went back and redrew the way she was doing Batgirl whenever you didn't see her with the mask on because she just could not stand the idea that people would think she didn't know how to draw Yvonne Craig. <laughs> wow. <laughs> what a trooper. <laughs> I think she just spent a day on it, just going through and doing patches and everything. But she was determined, like, no, I'm going to draw it. Like, that was her big thing. She, like, she would always watch the intro cartoon bit at the beginning of the show. And if you saw her on the Bat Cycle come through, then you knew it was going to be a Batgirl episode. And that was what she was in it for. So she would watch that. And then if Batgirl rode through, she'd stay and watch it. And if not, she'd flip it to something else. Yeah, it's kind of interesting because uh, we tried to approach it as, you know, what if they had another season and could do more uh, shows? And I also always thought of it as what if they also had a huge budget, like a crazy movie level budget, serious special effects and everything like that to really scale it up. Otherwise, why do it as a comic if you're not going to take advantage of some of the things you can do? What would you like to see as the next story? Because a lot of team ups have been done. What team up do you think hasn't been done yet? Well, they did Wonder Woman 77. They yes. did Man from Uncle, like you worked on that, and there was Steve and uh, Emma Peel. We've seen all of those from the '60s. Yeah, they did that. They did uh, the Green Hornet. That's right. Since they had actually crossed over on the shows, they were both William Dozer productions. Jeez, you think I'd have an answer for this? I can't think of what's left. They hit all the big ones. I know they did hit all the big ones. Even Scooby Doo's teamed up. You've had Scooby Doo. I don't think the Flemings will go for James Bond in it. So <laughs> in the first issue, we did an allusion to the Beatles being there. But, you know, you see four people also getting off the plane in one of the stories, waving to the crowd. It's not the first issue. It's a later issue. I just realized it's when they go to England. So you know that Batman and Robin are waving on one side. The Beatles are on the other. But again, that would also be very, very hard to wrangle nowadays. You have to do something like Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea or Swiss Family Robinson or whatever. It, it all, you know? Yeah, it'd all be stuff that like uh, you and I can even barely remember and, and nobody... <laughs> None of modern readers would understand what we're doing. That said, after we get off of Skype, I know I'm going to think of like, oh, it'll hit me. Well, you can just tweet it out there. As soon as Jim Chadwick brought up the whole thing, said, I think we're going to be able to do uh, Batman 66 as a comic. I immediately wanted to do book villains that were never introduced on the show as if they were introduced on the show. Mm -hmm. The first batch, they told us to stick to the ones that were already there. So it's all, you know, like Penguin, Catwoman, King Tut, stuff like that. And that's fine. It's probably a good way to do it because it kind of reestablished those characters because they wanted to do the unproduced Harlan Ellison story with Two-Face. And that was the one Lynn Wein and Jose Luis Garcia Lopez ended up doing. And it's gorgeous to look at. And then once that door was open, it's like, oh, yes, now I can have Killer Croc and Bane and everybody else that I wanted in there, but the 60s versions of them. And that was really fun. That was fun for the artist, too. That was a rare project where I usually got to kind of do requests where like artists would come in and say, look, I really loved this villain. So I would just tailor a story 
particularly four of them. The one that sticks in my mind the most is Dean Haspiel. He had brought up to me at a show that his godmother was Shelley Winters. That's right. Yeah. I was like, really? And then I thought, of course, because you have all these weird connections. I wasn't going to do a Ma Parker episode. One, it's weird because it's my name. So I was just like, eh. But then I thought about it like, oh, no, it would be cool to, to do a little homage to Shelly and change her slightly from the way they did her on the show. I was like, let's make her more bombshell era, you know, like her earlier days. So I just cooked up a story specifically so Dean could do that and go show his family that he did that. <laughs> <And> <laughs> trying to think who else oh yeah um scott kowalchuk he got me at a show one time like i think it was uh, emerald city in seattle and showed me a bunch of drawings he had done of batman 66 and i was like oh man you've got to work on this book and he made me do the one thing i thought i would never do as much as i love john Aston uh as gomez adams i couldn't stand his version of the riddler because to me it's like frank gorshin just did such a great riddler he was awesome yeah and then john Aston kind of doing this cigar thing (laughs) the whole time he wasn't as active he just kind of walks around whereas frank gorshin very physical and he could turn from like prancing around to suddenly a very menacing performance and that's kind of where the whole modern take on the joker all comes from his performance on the show really informed everything going forward It's kind of interesting. But anyway, Scott had done one drawing of the Aston version of the Riddler, and I loved it instantly. I went, fine, I've got to find a way to actually make this work in the story. And we did it by, like, Riddler's wearing a face mask that he pulls off. For a a panel or two, he looks like John Aston. And uh, Scott drew the Bane stuff, and it was so good. Uh, That guy was born to work on that property. It's a great series. Love it. Absolutely love it. It's classic. People haven't read it, they should read it. Yeah, if you everybody you see in there, so many people were just writing to me and the editor saying, "Please, this is the thing that got me into comics." It's like I know everybody has this story, so we tried to accommodate as many, and we were getting really talented people left and right. So it wasn't hard to just say yes, and then I would just figure out a story, and then Mike Allred would do a cover, and and then we were off to the races. It must have been really difficult the first year, I think it was, that it came out as a digital first, I believe, and there was like motion to them. There were extra panels in there that gave it a sense of motion. You're very right. It was a lot of work. It was Jonathan Case who figured out how to do a lot of it early on. Uh, He and I were going and looking at other digital comics and what people were doing with them. The one Mark Wade and John Rogers were working on, Thrillbent. You remember that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we looked all through those because we felt like that was really taking advantage of the form. Things would slide into a color as you would keep going. And it was easy stuff to do that you could do relatively fast, but kind of gave you extra steps. One of the things I liked was the fact that you could... uh, have a word balloon appear in the order you wanted people to read them. Because I've always gotten annoyed at people standing around reading in a comic shop and they read stuff out of order and they miss things and then later say, this story didn't make any sense. And they're like, (laughs) you didn't read it. When you're going through swiping and you you have to swipe to advance the story, it slows you down a little bit. You got a like kind of long experience. And I think a lot of people really liked it. But unfortunately, like we couldn't do it for that long because it was kind of expensive to do. It was so much labor on the artists. And I would break down the story and I would make a lot of suggestions. And they weren't hard suggestions. They, were, they weren't things like you got to do this. I was just trying to go ahead and do some of the work for them. So like here would be a good place to like break in, like show the arm motion in two parts. 
something like that. Because I was just thinking in terms of what wouldn't be hard to draw. You also didn't want it to like be substandard animation. You know, as soon as you try to make it something it's not, then it's not doing a good job at being anything. The neat thing about doing the digital stuff is when you do reveals, it's really good for doing horror comics. It's unlimited reveals when you're doing it that way. You don't see what's coming next. You don't accidentally spoil yourself by opening a page and seeing what's over on the right. You're instantly surprised as soon as you uh, swipe the panel. So that was a neat thing to take advantage of. But again, it's a perfect thing for doing scares. (laughs) It does keep things a surprise, even if it's not a scare, if it's just following the narrative. I mean, I read digital and I enjoy the ones where you swipe through because one, you can follow along in order, the proper order, so you don't get mixed up. And it does surprise you more and... If you need reading glasses, you don't have to use it that way. <laughs> it's a lot easier to read. That comes in handy when your eyes are getting uh, like mine are at the moment, where I'm like, that could be bigger. Like, oh, little, tiny, little tiny word balloons. Man, it just killed me. Oh, it gets fun later, I'll tell you. Well, we've reached the point now I call kicking back with the creator. And we've been kicking back, but this is just to learn more about you as an individual, things you like to do. So the first question is easy. What do you like to do for rest and relaxation? I like to work on things, Ron Swanson-y sort of stuff, but I'm not a woodworker like that, really. I just like fixing stuff. Like, I work on bikes a lot, uh, work on cars, things like that. And usually, it's not like I'm doing some hot riding or anything. I'm just doing my own repairs. And really, if you back it up, it's like, oh, you just can't afford to go to the garage. So, yeah, (laughs) that's part of it. I do work in comics, after all. No, I, I really like doing hands-on stuff like that, building things. Uh, I'm super interested in stuff like that. The other day I had a cool old radio stereo tuner from the 70s, this uh, Sherwood, and it's an amp that a lot of people want. And I got it for 40 bucks, and I was super excited about it. And all I've had to do so far is just replace the lamps inside so all the readout can be seen again. And I just need to clean up the little potentiometer in there, and it should sound even better. It sounds great. I love stuff like that. I'm not exactly a whiz with like soldering. I need to practice that because I keep seeing cool old electronics and I'd like them to work. And I need to actually, again, getting back to the eyes thing, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I have to break out some, some magnifying glasses to help and everything. But I love stuff like that. I'm trying to think of what other things I like to do. I don't know. I'm generally interested in a lot of stuff. And I'm not sitting around watching sports a lot. I like to actually just go do things and make all my sports friends sound lazy. <laughs> well, it can take a lot of time if you're going to watch the games all weekend. Sunday's blocked out. Uh, yeah, you can do a lot with that time. Yeah, I used to do that. It was only towards the end of college that I finally got to where, like, ah, I just wanted to be doing something else on a Sunday. I'd watch football all day. And then I was like, you know what? I'm sick of it. I just got just one day I quit watching. I quit pulling for anybody. And I just started going out doing things. I couldn't stand being inside. Now think back. What was your favorite birthday and why? I think this does get a uh, comics connection nice and solid. The one that always stands out to me, my mom had made a Spider-Man cake. It was probably just a very bad drawing of spider. And now I'm trying to think about it. It's like, it may have just had a spider on it. I do think it had a little bit of a drawing of Spider-Man on it. Can't remember if like she teamed up with the whatever place she got the cake from, if they gave it a shot, because I was pretty little. See, now, routinely, I think you can just go get an ice cream Spider-Man cake or something. Oh, yeah. Or you can just go to any store and they'll have party favors that are all the Avengers. All this stuff made me lose my mind as a child. <laughs> right. To be able to just buy Thor's hammer, I would that would have killed me. Mm-hmm. 
I hear you. You never could get anything like that. They just didn't make merch like that. Now it's all they make. And say only movies they make. <laughs> and, uh, and now we're spoiled. Yeah, so simply having a birthday cake with Spider-Man on it, to me, it was like, oh, wow, this is amazing. They went for something I like, and here it is. And I just thought it was the best thing in the world. That just made me think of the other day. My wife and I went to see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the Tarantino movie. Mm-hmm. I didn't think a lot of it worked for me uh, as a whole, even though I think there's a lot of good stuff in there. This Now it sounds like I'm just going to slam comics, but I was like, wow, I'm watching a movie where no one's flying around or shooting beams out of their eyes. <laughs> Oh, I understand. Yeah. I, yeah. I often go with my son to the movies. There's a Marvel movie out every three months, it seems like. Well, I'm literally always just watching superheroes now. And I was like, oh, it just hit me. I was watching a normal movie. <laughs> Potentially, you could say Brad Pitt is a super creature or something. Yeah. He's a superhuman in the movie. But that's the only bit. It is a very different world. Well, you know, it's good to have that variety. I mean, I, I love the superhero movies, and there's so much there to mind. There's so many different genres. They can just go on and on and on, but you, you got to balance it out with other stuff. And I do like watching the other types of movies as well. My wife's a good sport. She'll go along with the superhero movies. It's really me and my sons that enjoy that kind of stuff. But, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, I like to see other stuff too, for sure. Oh, yeah, it's not going to be special if it's all you see. That's right. It is just strange how completely it owns cinema now and you know everybody's building up and to the point where i wasn't even that fired up to go see endgame i knew if i didn't go ahead and go see it uh, i'd have to hear people <laughs> yeah spoil things and i was eventually going to see it so i went first weekend just like everybody and then that's the way it is now i have no choice my concern is that they will just run it into the ground. You know, like back in the 90s, uh, you would see Wolverine in every book, Punisher in every book, Ghost Rider in every book. You want to make it special. Now, fortunately, they have enough to draw from. It's not going to be the same characters over and over and over again. But I just worry about overexposure. Well, yeah. Now, this is the hypothetical situation question. You are stuck on a deserted island. You can have one book with you for pleasure, to enjoy, what would that one book be? Oh, that's tough. I'm going to get tired of whatever it is, no matter what. This can be my favorite book in the world. Hmm. It, it'd need to be a big fat book. It could be a set if they're all related. Oh, man, a set. I hadn't thought about that. No, I was trying to think of like, maybe I'll just get some extremely big volume. Like, remember Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell? I don't. What's that about? Susanna Clark. Oh, it's terrific. And they did a uh, really good BBC adaptation of the book a couple of years ago. Well, maybe it's about four years ago now. Uh, if you see it around, it's like in the early aughts, I want to say it came out around 2006 or seven or something like that. You'd often see it in everybody's house. It's a great big black book with a little picture of a bird on it. It's set in uh, Napoleonic Wars time. And it's about these two characters who are practicing magicians. It does have magic and fairies and stuff like that in it. But yet, it's also very much historical fiction, like really well-researched that she did. Neil Gaiman wrote a, I think he wrote a forward for it, because she consulted him a lot. Uh, or he was like a big inspiration and egged her on a lot while she was working on it. And I mean, when you see the book, it could stop a bullet. It's clearly took her a decade or more to write. Yeah, at the moment, that's leaping out at me. There's so many, like, it might be fun to have the three books of the His Dark Materials stuff by Philip Pullman. That might be a good thing to take on the desert island. Or maybe, you know what, maybe I'll take that uh, How to Survive a Desert Island book with me. because that <laughs> That's practical, <laughs> yes. 
I had this How to Survive on Land and Sea book that I used to get into for story stuff a lot for years. And, you know, it'd tell you how to do everything. I want that book. That's a, <laughs> that's what I think is going to do me the most good on uh, on there. Yeah, no one needs to read Lord of the Rings all over again. Um, there's a good example of something I feel like we've had pushed at us as much as you were worried about superheroes. Did all those and then did three Hobbit movies, which was completely not necessary. It's not that big a story that it needed to be stretched out into three long movies. And now there's going to be a whole series on it again. But I guess it's going to at least not cover the same ground. So that's interesting. They're going to do a more Silmarillion thing with the Tolkien stuff and kind of explore the other characters and what they could be doing. And I think that's fine. Well, there's a market for it and there's money to be made. So it shall be made. That's the way it works. Here's another hypothetical for you. They're going to make an action figure of you. Dynamite will make an action figure. What would be your accessory? Oh, man. What cool thing do I get to carry? I don't have a staff in real life. Eh, maybe a bike. Give me a bike. Yeah, because that'd be a tricky one. <laughs> It'd be a really complicated little accessory. <laughs> okay. Just a 10-speed would be nice. All right. But if it's a cheaper, uh, like one of those... Oh, I just realized, like, I'm about to badmouth somebody's model, so I'm not going to do it. Um, <laughs> my leather computer bag. I've got this leather satchel that I bought at, a, I believe, at the Boston Comic Con a few years ago. And uh, I carry my laptop in it everywhere. That could be my accessory. It looks very Indiana Jonesy, and I love it. It's super comfortable, and I tend to use it to drag my computer everywhere. Your beverage of choice, sir, when you're resting and relaxing. Well, I like IPAs a lot. That's a good one. But if I'm not drinking alcohol thing, I tend to like to get one of my favorite things to always order at a restaurant. And then everybody copies is the Arnold Palmer, the classic lemonade night. It's like the most refreshing drink in the whole world. It's so good. You can't go wrong with an Arnold Palmer. Do you have a favorite comfort food? It doesn't have to be good for you. This is a comfort food now. Well, yeah, by definition, I think it can't be. Not the way you phrased it. Oh, man. Eh, tacos. You know, like <laughs> just, no, tacos could be good for you. Chicken tacos, shrimp tacos. I had shrimp tacos last night. They were great. Yeah. Chicken, shrimp or fish tacos. I got out. They're so good. Yeah. I never get tired of them. No, me neither. Ah, Mexican food's the best. This is not a commercial. I'm not too far from a Del Taco. I told another guest that and it's, <laughs> it's really bad. So I'm like, oh, I worked out. No, oh, I'm going to go stop at Del Taco on the way home. <laughs> Oh, now I can't remember it, but I went to a place early in the year when I was in Vegas. You'll probably know it. It's like you go in and there's like three lines you can get into depending on whether you want pork, chicken or uh, beef. And, you know, and they make uh, tacos and, and a lot of things. It's one of those very specialized, big deal local things that can't be replicated anywhere else. And they've got their own system. And it's very confusing to a tourist who just comes in and <laughs> tries to figure out how to order something. You got to go with a local. Somebody's lived there a while. And now I can't remember what the name of it is. I'll find out from Dylan Todd and I'll send it to you. Oh, do tell me because this is not a chain. It sounds like this sounds like it's a really cool place. I have to check that out, please. <laughs> it's very cool. And uh, it's not over at Fremont or anything, but it's not. I don't think it's that far from there. Okay. Uh yeah, I'll find out what it's called. I wish I could remember, but boy, it was delicious. Fremont, they have uh, live concerts out there during the summertime. And you'll be up on that zip line going over. <laughs> like heck. <laughs> oh, no, no zip lines for me. <laughs> Giant one that goes all the way down the oh, whole yeah. strip. I've, oh, I've seen it. I've seen them going by. Oh, no, that's not for me. <laughs>
<laughs> oh, speaking of, I worked that into the Warlord of Mars attacks. Uh, yes, I did notice Fremont Street and everything. I was, I was like, oh man, that's great. Well, I was thinking of logistically where the saucers would be attacking. <laughs> And I thought, well, okay, they could get to Vegas pretty fast from where I had them come out in Arizona. Uh-huh. Um, and then I thought, well, the, then they got to go here. And then people in Vegas would just assume it's part of what's going on all the time. They just <laughs> blend right in. <laughs> yeah, they're just like, hey, Street performance. Look at the yeah. yeah for, oh, Fremont is a very strange area after dark. Yeah, a lot of uh, performances going on on the street, all kinds of stuff. So, yeah, that would blend right in. Yeah, it's some interesting entertainment. The dude dressed up like a baby interesting i don't need him to be there there are things you cannot unsee that one just creeps me out (laughs) or the guy who they'll get like one of those guys who lets you just push him into position while he stands there and kids are all running up making him grab himself and everything (laughs) no oh god (laughs) so las vegas it's funny like the first time I'd ever actually gone into a casino. Years ago, I was living in Los Angeles, and I would come out to work for Westwood Videos on their, like, Dune game and stuff like that. Because I was doing storyboards, and they would just bring me out. You know, I would either catch a plane or I'd drive out there. And I'd work for a week or two. And I remember my friend Manuel and I went down to Bellagio one night. And, you know, we were just going to walk through and just see what it was like. See all the high-stakes gamblers and everything. I thought it might be kind of neat. And I remember walking by this one table and I was watching the guy. I'm trying to remember what it was. Was he playing Baccarat or what? He would shove a mountain of chips forward at the dealer. And uh, then the guy would turn over the cards. Like, nope. And then he'd paddle them away. And then at one part, I suddenly realized I did the math and realized what color the chips were and how much the guy just threw away. And I was like, oh, my God, you could have just sent somebody to college. Oh, jeez. Yeah, and I just got nauseated. I was like, I got to get out of here. I can't watch people do this evil stuff. <laughs> I was like, I'm, I'm just not much of a gambler anyway. No, me neither. And that was just like, this is gross to me. I was like, that's real money. I mean, maybe not to you guys, whatever. I don't know where it's coming from. I'm not part of that scene. No, me neither. We go out, we will go to a place where they have a kid zone where the kids can play. And then we'll go to dinner. And then afterwards, it's like, you want to play a dollar on, like, one of the machines? Okay, I'll go find, like, Blackjack, and I'll sit there and make that dollar last as long as I can. And <laughs> yeah. have him bring a drink by. Okay, cover the dollar that way. You know, and that's it. I mean, we just don't really get into the whole gambling thing. We'd rather do something else with our money. A good time out, a good meal, or something tangible. But, I mean, literally, we would be tossing away our kids' college money, so we can't do that, you know. Yeah, you can't. It's uh, not if you're responsible. And it's no fun after a while. I mean, we just want to have a little bit of fun. Mm-hmm. I saw one person sitting in a casino, and she was in like uh, one of those motorized scooters. Because I remember distinctly, I was going to bed. I was finishing up downstairs and going back upstairs to my room. Next morning, I came down for coffee. She was still there. Uh, Same clothes and everything. I was like, oh, my it God. It's depressing. Yeah. Yeah, that's depressing. Yeah, and they just think, I, well, I've been putting it in this machine. Now it's all full of your money. Right. <laughs> you I'm, know, I'm due. Like- you know, it's got to come out for me now. There's no windows. They make it so you can't tell what time of day or night it is. No right. clocks, all that sort of thing. And it's just, this is not the way I see my retirement happening, I hope. It's gross. And some people just like it because, hey, they can smoke in there. Yeah. But man, and meanwhile, like all the good stuff to me about that area is like outside of town. You can go out there. I remember uh, the director I used to work with on those on those games, he was big into paragliding and he would go out there in the Red Rock Desert, jump off and catch a little spiral and fly up in the air. 
I went up there and watched him do that. I was like, man, that's cool. And then what's the mountain park outside of town? Mount Charleston's out there. Charleston, that is it. Thank yep. you. Yeah, you go out to Mount Charleston, it's beautiful. And when you start going up, it cools down really fast. And then there's trees. Mm-hmm. And you go, wow, there's trees out here in Nevada. <laughs> and, and you see the these spots, like there's places where people used to take a picnic in the 50s. And they'd sit there and they'd watch the nuclear test go off. <laughs> Yeah, and I th- I'm pretty sure there's some signage that shows where it was, where yes. people were there. And then you could imagine, like, way off in the distance, a mushroom cloud coming up and thinking, oh, my God, what kind of unique horror show did we live in? And people are like, yeah, we're going to go out there and watch them blow up some stuff. There is a, a monument for a, um, I think it was a B-2 that crashed there back in the 50s during the Cold War, and they couldn't talk about it. You know, people just died in action, but they couldn't say why they were flying this plane. It was all part of maneuvers for the Cold War. Yeah, I've been out there a couple times. Actually, Mount Charleston is literally 25, 30 minutes from where I live. I can zip out there. So you're on that side of town. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm up uh, northwest. So I'm pretty far out of the town. I can see the strip from the shopping centers in my area. So it's really cool just to kind of come out of the store and see there's the strip down there. But it's a little cooler up here. And if you want to really cool off, like you said, you go to Mount Charleston, we went up in the mountains a couple weeks ago, and you could smell pine trees, and it was nice and cool. And you can go up and hike up to a stream, a little waterfall. It's like amazing. It completely changes when you get up there. Really nice. Really, really nice. Well, this has been a pleasure. I have a lot more questions, but I'm going to save them for next time because I know you're going to be back. Yeah, sure. There's so much we can talk about. Uh, <laughs> yeah. but... <laughs> I'll come back. I'll remember all the things I couldn't remember this time. <laughs> Do you have any um, appearances planned coming up this year and next year? Here in Portland, Oregon, I'll be at the Rose City Comic Con. And then I'm going to go the next month, the Big Easy Con in New Orleans. That'll be cool. I've never done a show down there. And I've only even driven through New Orleans once years ago. It'll be really cool to finally spend some time down there. And a time of year to go. Originally, oh. it was oh yeah, in the summer. And I was like, yeah, I'll go. <laughs> it's like I knew it was going to be super hot in Louisiana. Mm-hmm. Uh, then they changed it and said, we're moving it to late October. And I was like, okay, yeah, that's more like it. Thanks. That is much better. And 2020, will you be going to Emerald City? Uh, yeah, I think so. I probably will. Okay. All right. Because that's on my calendar. That is like must do. That's the next one. This year, I'm kind of taking off getting settled in here and everything. But next year, that's the one I want to hit. All right. Well, cool. Well, thanks for having me on. My pleasure, and look forward to having you back someday, and uh, we'll catch up some more. Thank you so much for being on Creator Talks. Yeah, look forward to uh, wincing at my voice. This will be great. <laughs> <laughs> All right, folks, my guest next week coming up, Tom Cioli. That's right, Tom is working on Fantastic Four Grand Design. Much like Ed Pisker had worked on X-Men Grand Design, Tom is taking his crack at the First Family. So please join me in two weeks. Thursday, October 3rd. The book is coming out in October, so now's a good time to listen to the podcast. So if you didn't order it, well, you can find out why you should, because I'll tell you what, I love those Grand Design books. I guess I'm just more into the old-school comic book storytelling method, but, you know, this has a indie design and feel to it, so it's really something special. Definitely want to check that one out. Thank you for listening to the show this week. You can follow me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Creator Talks Pod. That's at Creator Talks Pod. Saturdays, I'll post my Silver Age comics from my collection, and on Sundays, my Bronze Age comic books from my collection. And share with me some of your favorites. 
This podcast is free to subscribe to, and it is available on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, voice-enabled smart speakers, YouTube, and now on Spotify. If you have a moment, please kindly rate and review the show on iTunes. Even if it's not kindly, you want to just give me some criticism. That's fine. Criticize away. I'd rather know what you don't like just as much as I want to know what you do like so I can make it a better show for your listening pleasure because you can listen to it anytime, anywhere, any place you want on demand. And the best way to help grow the show's audience so I can have more guests on the show is to please tell a friend who likes comic books, who likes to follow comic book creators and know what they're up to and get inside their head and find out who they really are because that's why I have the fun questions that I ask all my creators that are on the show because I want to know more about them as people because after all, it is the people that make the comics that we love to read and collect. Speaking of collecting, I have some more comics coming my way. I've had my eyes on some war comics and western comics. I don't know what it is. I never really followed those much, so to me this is kind of new territory. Oh yes, Marvel and DC. Meanwhile, I hope you enjoy your new comics you pick up on New Comic Book Day and the back issues you find. Well gang, that's all for now. For Creator Talks, this has been Christopher Calloway. Until next time.